a very exciting show today. And this introduction is being done after the taping of the show with our guests, because what I'm about to say, I think is very, very important for people to hear. And the question I want to ask is, can you oppose, can you disagree, and can you be offended by someone at one point in their life and then support, encourage, and actually become a student to that very person at a different point in time? And the answer to that is yes, and we're actually going to prove that today. You know, it didn't take much to sell me on that idea because I'm an example of this. I lived a life that goes against everything that I believe in today. And you're actually going to hear me identify a lot of similarities that I see in him that I saw in myself, which is how we actually learn to walk a mile in someone's shoes. Now, I didn't stand on what he was about, as some may have heard that saying, which is many times stated as a joke, but honestly, not that far off. I'm not a racist. I hated everybody equally, including myself. Now, there are going to be parts that I've added to this, which weren't a part of the show that I taped with him, because Lona and I have always attempted to either make sense of something or in most cases in our shows, have find evidence that disputes the argument. Now, I decided at some point in time in the show that I did with our guest to not include some things because through our conversation, I realized that I didn't, want, I didn't really want him to explain certain things that he no longer believes in. Walk a Mile in My Shoes is about love. And if you want proof of this, Watch our episode on the Westboro Baptist Church with the very person who condemns my co-host to hell as a transgender. Lona was amazing and the person on our show that seemed to understand better than I did. How ironic is that? I also know that Lona is going to be a little disappointed that he wasn't on our show today, but maybe I can get our guest back at a later time. So we're going to get this moving on. Adolf Hitler said in Austria in 1920, for us, this is not a problem you can turn a blind eye to, one to be solved by small concessions. For us, it is a problem of whether our nation can ever recover its health, whether the Jewish spirit can ever really be eradicated. Don't be misled into thinking you can fight a disease without killing the carrier, without destroying the basilisk. Don't think you can fight racial tuberculosis without taking care to rid the nation of the carrier of that racial tuberculosis. This Jewish contamination will not subside. This poisoning of the nation will not end until the carrier itself, the Jew, has been banished from our midst. This quote is found on the website of the organization that we're going to talk about today. Our guest today, Jeff Scoop, once led the National Socialist Movement, which was a neo-Nazi group in the United States. The NSM website defines their mission statement as defending the rights of white people everywhere, preserving our European culture, and heritage, strengthening white family values, promoting economic self-sufficiency, and encouraging white racial separation. 
This is Eric McCoy, and we are the show that works to understand those things that we don't understand. We work to walk a mile in the shoes of people that we disagree with and may actually hate us for our beliefs. I unfortunately don't have my amazing co-host, Lana Curie, today, but as we all say, show must go on, right? So I'm very excited about our guest today, uh, Jeff Scoop who once led the National Socialist Movement, which was the largest and most active neo-Nazi group in the United States. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, they were known for the crudeness and what it says of its propaganda and the violence it worked hard to provoke. Now, before I bring them on, I want to play a video that will allow our listeners to hear Jeff Scoop's intensity and some of the things that he said while leading this group. White power! White power! Hail Factory! Those of you that know about the NSM, we are the front line of the fight for the white race. We are the shock troops for the white race. You call us the hate mongers. You call us the racists. The real hate is out here. It's those people standing out here making noise. You see here the vanguard of the white race. When we rise to power in this nation, it will be you that are the true enemies, designated as enemies of America. And don't think for one minute that you can stop us. Not here, not today, not tomorrow, not ever. All right, so I have so many questions today that I'm very excited to ask so that we can try and understand the thinking behind the NSM, and then learn how Jeff was able to walk away from them after so many years. So I want to thank you, Jeff, for coming on our show today. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, and I was looking over the NSM website, and the more I studied this to try and think like a neo-Nazi, I ended up having more questions and confusion probably than when I started. And I wanted to mention some real quick. So one of the things that, so the NSM 25 point plan, right? So this was, and then I kind of did more research. The 25 points were the Nazi party's official statements of goals. And then kind of what I saw too later years that the Nazis sort of ignored a lot of those points. And according to the leadership guide, and I just kind of wanted to say this, that it says, you know, we are concerned with Germany, always with Germany. And of course, this isn't Germany. <laughs> the NSM's core beliefs include defending the rights of white European people. And, you know, what it said on there is, of course, only whites may become citizens. Consequently, since Jews are not white, no matter what they may claim, no Jew may become a member of our nation. Now, those who aren't citizens are only able to reside in our nation as guests under the authority of legislation for foreigners. Now, most people today, I don't think, really know their full an ancestry. <laughs> you kind of agree with that? Yeah, a lot of people don't. Uh, some people do, and, and there's a number that don't. And, and you're talking about the 25 points that, that are on there. And I'm not sure what, what they have on their website now, but um, it says on there that it's for the German nation. Is that, is that what you're saying? Or were you reading that from somewhere else? According to, they have a leadership guide. And the leadership guide says, we were concerned with Germany, always with Germany. 
And then, of course, I was just thinking, like, this isn't Germany. <laughs> right, right. Okay, I got it. So this begins an example of more confused than when I began. As I was editing the video, I realized that I stated something that Jeff didn't quite understand, and I think this is for good reason. So I want to explain how this confused me as well. For anybody a part of the NSM, I doubt that this has been considered for inconsistencies because of biases and agendas. The leadership guide, as you can see, is from the NSM website. And under the main menu, if you go all the way down, you see leadership guide. Once you click on leadership guide, you will come to this, which is translated from the Third Reich original. Now, I thought we were at something much more recent. And if you go to the second page, I didn't catch this. And the reason was, is that you see copyright 2016, but Alfred Kotz was somebody from a long time ago that was much prior to 2016. Now, when you scroll down to page eight, this is where you see Germany. We are concerned with Germany, always with Germany. Now, even though it is on their website, they didn't obviously write it. Although if anybody reviews my website, you will not find anything on my site that I don't believe in unless it's information that are on certain shows, which I clarify in my dialogue once you watch it all the way through. This means that to me, I must assume that they are concerned with Germany, always with Germany. So I hope that clarified things as much as possible. <laughs> I, I doubt it, but I tried. Now, this is where it gets more unsettling and to me, un-American, because whether someone agrees with something or not, we stand on the Constitution, which is what being an American is about, not a member of the Nazi party. The Nazi party is from Germany. And the 25-point plan with the NSM in America is based on the German Nazi party. And I'm going to prove this. And I'm only going to go over the first five because obviously there are 25, but for time purposes, we're going to limit it just to the first five, which will prove its point. The National Socialist Movement, the NSM's 25-point plan, which is obviously of America. And then I will read the German 25-point plan. If anybody does not agree with me or is skeptical of this, please look up the German 25-point plan. So as you can see, the NSM has 25 demands that are inspired by the original NSDAP 25-point program, which has to do with Germany. The National Socialist Party of America is committed to implementing these requirements on behalf of our European American constituency. And number one, we demand the unification of all whites in the United States on the basis of the right to self-determination of our people. We shall be governed by our people alone. The German version says we demand the union of all Germans to form the greater Germany on the basis of the people's right to self-determination enjoyed by the nations. Now I'm going to skip Number two, because uh, there is some inconsistencies in this one. The NSM is concerned about 
safeguarding their children from violence, exploitation, abuse, and neglect. Uh, I don't know if the Germans really cared about that. But number three, we demand our own territory for the sustenance of our people. The German version says we demand land and territory, colonies for the sustenance of our people and colonization for our superfluous population. Number four is NSM. Only whites may become citizens. Consequently, since Jews are not white, no matter what they may claim, no Jew may become a member of our nation. The German version, none but members of the nation may be citizens of the state. None but those of German blood, whatever their creed may be, no Jew, therefore, may be a member of the nation. And number five, according to the NSM, those who aren't citizens are only able to reside in our nation as guests under the authority of legislation for foreigners. And according to Germany, whoever has no citizenship is to be able to live in Germany only as a guest and must be regarded as being subject to foreign laws. So let's now break this apart and see if this 25-point plan, or at least just the first five, well, the first one, and then the third, fourth, and fifth, fit in with what being an American is. Because again, being an American means that we have agreed to follow the Constitution of the United States. For those that don't want to follow the Constitution of the United States, and if you believe in Nazism, then I think Germany is probably the right place to be. Now, I do believe that you would not be able to fly the flags of the National Socialist Movement or anything related to it if you live in Germany and be able to use the term neo-Nazi. So let's begin by looking at the first one, we demand the unification of all whites in the United States on the basis of the rights to self-determination of our people. We shall be governed by our people alone. So what does the Constitution say? So Article 2 defines the executive power, and it states the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. So this would be one of the governing authorities. Now, within Section 1, it says no person except a natural born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained to the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States. Article one, which has to do with legislative powers, which is another governing authority. It says, no person shall be a senator who shall not have acquired to the age of 30 years and been nine years a citizen of the United States and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state for which he shall be chosen. So in that one, you don't even need to be a natural born citizen just to have been here for seven years. So what is it that makes you a citizen? So if you go to the 14th Amendment, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person 
of life, liberty, or property without the process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. It says nothing about white. Number three says we demand our own territory for the sustenance of our people. Now, I will say that if you purchase land, that would be your own territory, but you have to buy it. Number four, only whites may become citizens. Consequently, since Jews are not white, no matter what they may claim, no Jew may become a member of our nation. I think we already clarified that. You just got to be born here or naturalized. And number five, those who aren't citizens are only able to reside in our nation as guests under the authority of legislation for foreigners. We are under the rules of the Constitution of the United States. Again, whether you like it or not, that's what the Constitution says. I can honestly say that there have been presidents, there are senators that I disagree with, that I don't like, but it is what it is. And that is what being an American is. When I was reading over so many of the stuff it's got for whites and then it's got the, you know, the, the Jewish dilemma or whatever, you know, it said. And then of course for blacks, um, the one thing that always sticks out to me, and of course this is the premise of racism is just generalization. You know, if I can find one discrepancy in the argument of blacks are stupid. And then of course I know, and you know, very intelligent black people, um, does that create problems? I mean, I've always kind of been confused on, on, um, you know, the NSM or, or any, any, you know, white supremacist group or anything like that. Um, do they not talk to people, other people get to know people? John Urschel is going for, you ready for this? His PhD in applied mathematics from a school you might've heard of. MIT. Urschel has already made major breakthroughs in the world of mathematics. Even though he's only 25, he's published several scholarly papers, topics I'm sure you're familiar with. So far, John Urschel's most important contribution to the math world is his theorem. He broke it down in simple English. So listen up. It was uh, related to the spectral bisection of graphs and... uh, What? Spectral bisection of graphs. Oh, of course. And and all that means is, uh, do, do you know what a graph is? Oh, come on. Of course I know what a graph is. I'm talking about a set of discrete objects and the relationships between them. Oh, that kind of graph. Do you know what a network is? Well, I do know what a network is, but it's not the kind of network. Not the kind of network I'm talking about. So a network is just a set of discrete objects, which you can represent as dots. And then the connections between them are just the lines to show connections. And this is called a network or a graph. Barack Obama had a big part of 9-11. Which part? Not being around, always on vacation, never in the office. Why do you think Barack Obama wasn't in the Oval Office on 9-11? That I don't know. We'd like to get to the bottom of that. So there's nothing Barack Obama could do to prove that he was born here? Uh, If there was maybe witnesses that were attendants at his birth, like his mother? Would you listen to no, his mother? No, no, no. She has motivation to lie. So you don't trust uh, Donald Trump's birth certificate either? Uh, yeah, because he's been here forever. Well, how do you know? But how do you? What's your proof? Um, well, his parents and. But no, but they—they're biased. I'm talking about like people who could Why be. Why would own. they be biased? 
These extreme nations, they don't, they don't treat women with respect. We treat women with respect here. Yes, we do. That's an American ideal. Yeah. Tell me about your shirt. What's it say? It says, <laughs> Hillary sucks. <laughs> but not like Monica. Hilarious. So we were talking about treating women with respect. It's an American ideal that we treat women with respect. You got to give me the back of that shirt one more time. That's too much fun. Trump that bitch. <laughs> we don't even see the irony in it. I love it. Right? A lot of them don't, you know, so um, or they they don't acknowledge those things. So there's a lot of cognitive dissonance. There's a lot of uh, disconnects uh, mentally for that. You know, so if, if you're pointing out somebody, for example, someone's in, embedded in a, a extremist ideology, whether it's NSM, whether it's, uh, you know, another white supremacist group or another type of uh, extremist ideology, when you th when you're thinking in that mindset, you're not able to see the reality that's in front of you in a lot of ways. So there's, there's that disconnect where, where the, where if you say, for example, like the argument or, or the question you proposed, like there's a lot of intelligent black people, of course, there's a lot of intelligent people of all races. And there's a lot of uh, not so intelligent people of all races. It's, it's, it's really a human humanistic thing. It's not uh, it has, it has nothing to do with one's race or anything like that. But when you're in the, these type of ideologies, um, that's how you think because you're inside that echo chamber or inside that bubble and you're not allowing yourself to see the humanity in, in the person that that's across the aisle, so to speak. Yeah. So you're just literally blinded to whatever is in front of you because of your belief system. Absolutely. Or, or you might even, even some of them might acknowledge it and they'll say, well, that's just one, or you, you found the one, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then they'll just move on from it. You know, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll look at it from, from that same lens where they're, they're blocking out the reality that it, that's right in front of them. Yeah. Caleb Anderson. He's a kid genius who is not yet a teenager, but is already cruising through college courses and is set to go to a very prestigious university. As Mark Strassman shows us before he could even walk, Caleb could astound people around him. This elite engineering school fell over itself recruiting him. Plug it in here. Caleb saw the labs. He met the school's president. I have heard so much about you. Welcome to Georgia Tech. He's a perfect candidate to come into our program and be very successful. Admitted to study aerospace engineering. By age one, he was reading. Caleb. Fun. Fun. At two, he knew sign language and how to do fractions. One, mm -hmm. two, mm -hmm. three. He's taken college courses for a year. His parents now want a university that's the right fit for a tween genius. Does it ever occur to you, you know what, I'm, I'm looking at college and I'm 12 years old. This is my life, this is how I am, and um, I've been living this way my whole life. He accepts that he's different, definitely smart. So we just plug these in here. Mastering quantum physics is impressive on its own, but what's most remarkable about Carson Hui Yu as the second derivative of position with respect to time is that he's only he 14 and he's graduating he from Texas Christian University today, their youngest graduate ever. I was 10 graduating high school, so it's really the only thing that I could do. It's not like I could stay at home for eight years just doing nothing. His mom, Claretta, says she realized Carson was pretty special when he was just a toddler. Around age three, he loved math, and he asked me if he could learn calculus, and I thought, hmm. She homeschooled Carson until he was five when she knew he needed more. So she took me to a public school, and 
they said that I was way too advanced. I ended up going to a high school, private high school. A five-year-old in eighth grade. After that, I didn't skip anything and graduated at 10 years old. That 10-year-old boy dove right into physics when he got to TCU. It would become his major along with a double minor in math and Chinese. Professor Magnus Ritby became a mentor to Carson. One of the main principles have always been don't give him preferential treatment. Try to really treat him as uh, any other college kid. Of course, Carson really isn't your average college kid. In the fall, Carson will return to TCU for graduate school and eventually his PhD. But this time, he won't be the only member of the family on campus. His brother, Cannon, just 11 years old, will be a freshman. When I come to TCU, I'm going to major in astrophysics and engineering. Claretta, the proud mom of the two youngest TCU students ever, says there is no magic parenting formula, just a love of learning. I was blessed that God gave me such wonderful little boys and they love to learn. It's very cult-like. It's a very cult-like mentality. Yeah. You know, according to, and I, this is another thing I've always thought about, you know, it's like according to historians in a sense, the name National Socialist, you go to Nazis, Germans, Workers Party. And I think it reveals and sort of what I kind of thought about more about the image that the party wanted to project and, you know, kind of the constituency that it aimed to build than it did about the Nazis' true political goals, which were building a state based on racial superiority and brute force governance. And so given that the Nazis or Nazism is traditionally held to be an extreme right wing ideology, um, it always kind of confused me, you know, because it refers to, um, you know, by the name itself, a political system normally kind of plotted in the far left in the, in the name, which creates a lot of confusion, I think. And, and I kind of wanted your thoughts on this and I don't, I don't, I mean, get too much into politics, I, although I do have some questions I want to ask, um, but your understanding when you were with them. And if you go to, you know, there's been a lot of right-wing newspapers that claim your group would be on the far left. I like, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to give you an example. There was one, um, I think it was like the UFP news. The Nazis were left-wing socialists. Yes, the Nationalist Socialist Workers' Party of Germany, otherwise known as the Nazi Party, was indeed socialist, and it had a lot in common with the modern left. Hitler preached class warfare, agitating by the working class to resist exploitation by capitalists, particularly Jewish capitalists. Their programs called for the nationalization of education, healthcare, transportation, and other major industries. They instituted a vigorously enforced a strict gun control regimen. They encouraged pornography, legitimacy, and abortion, and they denounced Christians as right-wing fanatics. Yet a popular myth persists that the Nazis themselves were right-wing extremists. This insidious lie biases the entire political landscape today. And I wanted to say that because Mo Brooks, okay, is an, is an example who, you know, there's not consistency. So you guys, you know, would be a far right wing, right, ideology. 
And then, of course, the other right-wing people dispute that you are a right-wing ideology and portray that you're a left-wing. <laughs> and Mo Brooks actually had made a, had a, made a whole you know, thing in Congress quoting Hitler and using it as, this is a socialist. Mr. Speaker, a big lie is a political propaganda technique made famous by Germany's National Socialist German Workers' Party. But more on that later. I quote from another socialist who mastered big lie propaganda to a maximum and deadly effect. Quote, in the big lie, there is always a certain force of credibility because the broad masses of a nation are always more easily corrupted in the deeper strata of their emotional nature than consciously or voluntarily. And thus, in the primitive simplicity of their minds, they more readily fall victims to the big lie than the small lie, since they themselves often tell small lies in little matters, but would be ashamed to resort to large-scale falsehoods. It would never come into their heads to fabricate colossal untruths, and they would not believe that others could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously. Even though the facts which prove this to be so may be brought clearly to their minds, they will still doubt and waver and will continue to think there may be some other explanation. End quote. Who is this big lie master? That quote was in 1925 by a member of Germany's National Socialist German Workers' Party. That's right, Germany's Socialist Party, more commonly known as the Nazis. The author was Socialist Adolf Hitler in his book, Mein Kampf. Mr. Speaker, America can either learn from history or be doomed to repeat it. Now, here's where some of the confusion came in when I was thinking about a lot of this stuff. Now, this is not specifically the NSM. And I didn't really ask Jeff this question specifically related to this because this is not an individual from that organization. But to me, there is some similarities that fall into this. This is a right-wing individual that is sort of disputing what Mo Brooks is saying. And I think this was kind of where my argument was going. But just take a look at this before Jeff explains the socialism quality of the National Socialist Movement and the Nazi Party. No one will honor us for losing gracefully. No one mourns the great crimes committed against us. For us, it is conquer or die. To be white is to be a striver, a crusader, an explorer, and a conqueror. We build, we produce, we go upward. And we recognize the central lie of American race relations. We don't exploit other groups. We, we don't gain anything from their presence. They need us and not the other way around. Within the very blood in our veins as children of the sun lies the potential for greatness. That is the great struggle we are called to. We are not meant to live in shame and weakness and disgrace. We were not meant to beg for moral validation from some of the most despicable creatures to ever populate the planet. We were meant to overcome, overcome all of it, because that is natural and normal for us. The press has clearly decided to double down and wage war against the legitimacy of Trump and the continued existence of white America. 
but they are really opening up the door for us. America was, until this past generation, a white country designed for ourselves and our posterity. It is our creation. It is our inheritance, and it belongs to us. Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! What are your thoughts on that? There's a lot to unpack there in in uh, <clears throat> in that statement. Um, the way that and and this, I have to bring myself back to that time period. And, and the way that we would explain that, we would say that back then would say that national socialism was neither left nor right. That we took the best of the right and the best of the left and combined them. That's that's how I would explain it back in those days. Um, as far as it being specifically like a left-wing movement, I, I would disagree with that because um, although um, like the word, word socialist, excuse me, um, confused a lot of people, there was uh, the, the National Socialists fought the communists historically. That, that was the one of the reasons uh, that they rose up and were became so popular in Germany is they were fighting the communists. It was down to the National Socialists versus the communists. So, um, so just easily, you know, throwing it in a box and label, labeling it far left isn't isn't totally accurate. I mean, it does take some aspects of the left, um, but it also denounces aspects of the right. So, uh, for example, a common question. That I, that I got when I was in the movement, and even now, uh, doing the work I do now, um, was, well, you, you know, that uh, movement was right-wing, you know, that it supported uh, Trump and all, uh, President Trump and all this kind of stuff. And the National Socialist Movement didn't like Trump, you know, so it, it didn't, it, it, it would fight with people on the right and it would fight with people on the left equally. So uh, there's really not a simple answer to that. It, it's, just, it's not necessarily a left-wing movement, but it's not a right-wing movement either. Huh. Yeah, I I always thought with Trump and kind of the way that he spoke and the racist <laughs> tendencies of Trump and things that he said that you guys actually would support that. Is that but that's not the case? The way the way that a lot of people as the organization itself. Um, at least when I was running things there, um, did not endorse Trump. It did not endorse either uh, either of the candidates, um, uh, the main parties that were running. Um, but uh, different individuals would a, a lot of times would vote for Trump over. And we'll just use the example when Trump was running against Hillary Clinton as sort of a lesser of two evils. That's that's how a lot of people would see it, where they would say, for example, Trump was very close to Israel and it was very uh, did a lot of. Uh, work with Israel and things of that nature. So uh, naturally people that were part of an anti-Semitic organization wouldn't, wouldn't be okay with that. Yeah. Okay. I, and, and I think a lot of people, even, you know, aside from, you know, that organization and stuff, you know, chose the lesser of two evil on whatever side it was that they voted on. So another thing I find fascinating and I, me and Lona, my co-host have talked about, you know, the, the flying of the Nazi flag and the Confederate flag, right? You know, and, and again, in the United States, right? So the Civil War and World War II ended the lives of many European Americans, which was 
what you guys kind of stand on, at least according to the principles that we're standing up for the European Americans um, who fought to preserve that, you know, the fundamental American values like freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. Um, they fought, again, in other words, to protect a nation that allowed that organization um, to fly the stuff. Um, and they were like the enemies that we once fought to destroy. And as long as, you know, I think honestly, like as long as American remains a place where those rights are preserved, um, those, I think it was what seven between the two wars, 750,000 deaths between the eight years between the wars were not in vain in a sense. That's, I mean, and I wanted to just kind of get your thoughts on this, but, you know, Americans and, you know, we fought in this war and so many people died and then we're flying flags of the enemy of the people that we were fighting. And again, I'm just saying this as Americans, um, you know, I, and again, I just always kind of thought that because Germany, they don't even allow it. Right. Right. I don't think Germany, they allow you to fly anything that's related to anything of Nazism. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. You can go to jail for that over there. Yeah. And here, and do you, I mean, is that, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I mean, is there any rationale behind that? I mean, to say, okay, we're neo-Nazis and we're Nazis. And I know that, you know, Americans died, but we don't care, <laughs> you know, um, and we're standing up for this. Does I mean, maybe today that sounds crazy, but I mean, what, what's the, what's the rationale behind that? Well, the rationale behind that, <clears throat> how they, how they feel about that and, and using those old flags. And, and uh, again, this is a, a complex, a complex answer to a complex <laughs> question. Um, the rebel flags um, typically that would show up at rallies that the NSM was doing were being flown by the Klan. It was not flown by the NSM. I can't speak about what the organization's doing today. Now I know they fly the old school Nazi flags and they fly rebel flags and all, and all this kind of stuff. But um, I can say when I was there, um, I don't know exactly what year it was, but at some point uh, the flying of German flags was banned at, at NSM rallies, at least from the NS, NSM standpoint. If someone else from another group showed up with it, that was one thing, but um, the NSM flags, as you can see in the uh, graphics behind you, um, did use the swastika, but did not use the, the German versions. That was uh, American National Socialist uh, type symbol symbology. I know the group today has gone back to using the German flags and things of that nature. Um, and, and you're right. A lot of people, and I, I can tell you from experience, when I was there, one of the reasons why we stopped using the German flags was because there was people that would come up to us after events, and not one or two, but this was for years it was going on when we were using the German flags, where people would come up and say, well, I, I would get involved, I would join, but I'm not German. And that was a really common thing that we kept hearing. So um, that's why I felt back then at that time that it was important to sort of Americanize uh, the message and uh, things of that nature. I want to get to a couple of things on the, the website. I kind of brought this up, you know, but one of the most, and this is actually what it says, quote unquote, you know, one of the most noteworthy and detrimental behavioral characteristics of American Blacks is near or total lack of empathy in response to another person's feelings. They may come across as cold, 
unfeeling, callous, overly critical, or harsh. And this, again, just kind of goes back to that whole generalization. And I, I wanted to show you something real quick. And I, I you know, kind of put together another video that I thought this was the coolest thing ever. I'm sure you've seen this, um, or at least part of this. Um, but there's also no, I want to show you a video real quick. Dude, I waited in this line all day. I have a ticket to get into that event and I got kicked out by a fucking Trump person because it's a private event. Can someone explain to me how a public election becomes a private event where only handpicked people can get into the rally when I wasn't even doing anything wrong? Can someone explain that to me? I'm a little confused about our process. If you're Had you seen that end part before? I have, yes. Yeah. That, uh, and, and I always, uh, I found that really cool, you know? Um, and the response the guy gave when he kept saying, why do you hate me? Why do you hate me? And his response was, I don't know. Powerful. Yeah. And Over. I thought about this with, I sometimes think of two types of people when, when this, and you, you can kind of, um, those that just truly believe it and then, and those that just spout out propaganda, does everybody really truly believe it? Or is this a power game or is this, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's hard to say, <clears throat> you know, to speak for other people where they're at. For, for me, I was an ideologue, so I, I was hardcore committed when I was there. Um, and that started breaking apart uh, towards the last, you know, couple of years, a couple few years that I was there. It started, uh, you know, breaking, breaking down and, and um, 
and going through that de-radicalization process. Um, for some people, it's a sense of belonging. For some people, it's, um, you know, they had trauma and different things growing up. For other people, it's the ideology. <laughs> you know, it's really on a case-by-case basis. You can't say not everybody is exactly the same. And um, everybody thinks differently along, along those lines. And it was interesting, that clip, because uh, I, I saw the guy in the clip, Ken, the free hugs guy. I, yeah. um, he's with Conscious Campus, who is also um, we're both part of the same um, uh, team now. Oh, cool. We're both at Conscious Campus and we're talking about doing talks together and things like that. So it was really cool to see him in the video. And and you can see he's just out there, you know, spreading love and peace and, and positivity and, and not everybody. Uh, he got some pushback just giving trying to give people hugs. It's Absolutely. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's what really kind of hit me with that. I mean, you can see that he's genuine. Like he literally is just like, you know, it, it didn't seem fake at all. And the responses that he got you know, from some of the people kind of disturbing. And and you kind of look at some of it, like there's, there's the difference between blatant racism and subtle racism, you know, and a lot of people, I live in California. Okay. And I live LA County lived in orange County for many years. Orange County is the greatest example of very subtle racists. You know, they're not the blatant, Um, or so many of them think racism doesn't even exist anymore. And, and you kind of think like, my God, why don't you turn on, turn on the TV, (laughs) you know, look at some of this stuff, but I don't know where that was, but you know, that's just such a great example of, uh, the craziness of it. I just want to give you a hug. (laughs) And I liked that. I really liked, and I'd seen that video before the guy that hung the, neo-nazi the guy got punched in the face at first and um and then this guy and he had talked about it later that you know he was taught whether it be by his dad or somebody you know just to spread love um i couldn't there was another video i'd seen too where there's a guy holding a sign that says something like you hate me i love you you know something like that and uh you know, those are, kind of, those are the things that like you look on that NSM website and it's like no empathy, no, you know, it's like, well, open your eyes a little bit. Yeah, exactly. You know? And uh, and that quote that you were reading from the website, I don't think that was on there when I was, when I was part of the organization. So I, I'm not really at liberty to comment on what exactly the group is up to today because I don't pay that close of attention to it and what, what they're doing. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of that's been changed, you know. I, I, I want to ask you, um, and this has kind of been a real important question I wanted to ask you, was, were your parents racist? No, absolutely not. In fact, they tried desperately to, to get me out of the organization all those years mm-hmm. when I was involved. So um, the entry point for me was my grandfather fought in Hitler's army in World War II. So um and again, it wasn't something that he pushed or, or encouraged or anything like that. But just knowing that um, led me down that rabbit hole. Basically, I was fascinated by his story, by his history, and my great uncles fought as well. Um, so that was something that I just started exploring on my own. And, and of course, you know, I asked them uh, or asked my grandfather, you know, about the war and, and what he did and th- things of that nature. And um, mostly stories that I heard were just, you know, 
stories from from the war, not about being a member of the party or anything, which is which he wasn't. But he was just a soldier, you know, in the army there. Yeah, I have a story. And the reason I asked that I had, I used to own a program in Anaheim. Um, I'm, I'm a substance abuse counselor. And so I work in the, you know, substance abuse field. And I had a program in Anaheim and we focused on alternative sentencing. That was, you know, that's kind of where my story went, lots of arrests. And, and so, um, so I really, really had a lot of passion for helping this. And, and again, Orange County, a lot of white people, um, and a lot of the people that we um, worked hard to get out of custody, you know, had spent many, many years in prison. And of course, you go to prison and you got, you know, P9 and you got the Aryan Brotherhood and you got all these white supremacists, you know, prison, you know, gangs. And there was one guy that came in and I always, this one always sticks in my mind. And it kind of goes back to that question that if there's something that ever shows you one disagreement of maybe what you were taught, maybe you reevaluate. So I had a therapist that I had hired, Leroy Thompson, probably one of the best therapists I've ever met in my life. Um, again, very intelligent black man. <laughs> and, um, and so when I got this guy out of custody and he was actually looking at a fourth strike in California, normally they strike you out at three, but they were like, he was looking at a fourth strike strike and we fought hard for this guy and we got him out of custody got him into our program and then came to learn how racist he was and i remember you know talking to him about his past and his dad was like a grand poobah of the kkk you know and just that's what he learned you know he learned from the guy that he trusted the most probably loved the most and and so it makes sense you know from from that aspect i remember the first time Leroy, this, this show you how racist this guy was, right? This uh, therapist comes in and then this client comes in, realizes that there's a black therapist. He comes into my office and I'll say it exactly the way he said it. He comes into my office and he says, I ain't sitting in that group with that fuck. And I go, Whoa, hang on a second. You know? And I told him, I said, look, I said, look, sit in the back, just listen. That's all I want you to do. Just listen. You don't have to participate. And so he does. And then he comes back in afterwards and he's like, yeah, okay, that wasn't so bad. After four months, he comes in and he says, can he be my therapist? Right. And I, I was, I was blown away from, you know, kind of seeing, and it was, I thought that was pretty quick, you know, and then I talked to him a lot afterwards and that's really what it came down to. You know, he was taught that black people are stupid. They're less than they're, he started realizing that, this guy's way more intelligent than I am. I mean, this guy's, uh, you know, he's got, he, he's also a professor at uh, Cal State Fullerton and, you know, so brilliant guy, but that, that really kind of always stuck with me. Um, and I think you kind of answered the question though, you know, just in the aspect that so many people, he was forced to, you know, obviously sit because of if he didn't do this program, he was going to prison for 10 years or 20 years, maybe, you know, so he was kind of forced to, to do that. Um, but I think he kind of answered the question that most of those people in that don't do that. They don't ever sit down and listen, you know, they don't pay attention. They don't open their eyes. Um, another, another thing that I, I saw a video on with you was you deny the Holocaust. And I've always been interested on that, on how that makes sense. 
Um, do you today do still? No, absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I work, I, actually, I work very closely with the Jewish community because that was okay. the community that I vilified the most when I was in the movement. I was a hard, hardcore anti-Semite. And uh, today I'm a, a consultant for the Simon Wiesenthal Center who were, you know, the original Nazi hunters. And I, I work with them very closely. Really? Yes. Yes. They had a TV show on that. That was really cool. I can't remember the name of it, though. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I kind of disturbed myself a little bit today um, or well, partly yesterday and today because I was doing a lot of research on how that even makes any sense. You know, um, there was a we had a we didn't have the guy on the show, but we had a video of a KKK member. Um, that was, you know, being interviewed and stuff. And uh, I don't care for the Holocaust lie. I wish they'd go and tell the truth about the Holocaust, that, you know, it was our soldiers who done the killing of the Jews. And I think they should tell the truth that we bombed the concentration camps thinking that they were military bases of the Germans. And we're basically, it would be the American government, the British government, and the Canadian government are responsible for the Holocaust. It wasn't the Germans. The problem with that argument is it sort of all falls apart when you start looking at, you know, you had the Nuremberg trials, you know, the, you know, these high ranking officials, they never denied any of it happened. Um, they didn't want to take responsibility. They blamed Hitler. They blamed, you know, other, <laughs> other people. And, uh, and here's how I disturbed myself because they had the full video that they actually showed um, of, you know, in that. And of course it shows just the horrors of, you know, the, concentration camps and things like that. Um, but what is that argument? Well, there, there's several of them. And, and one of the reasons, you know, for, for me, that was one of the, the biggest things that I struggled with was some of the numbers um, in that. And that's something that we work through with a lot of people that we help bring out of these type of organizations. They get tripped up on that. There's Holocaust revisionism. There's people that are, you know, rev revising history and saying that it wasn't true. There's different different things that people in these movement groups cite as facts, um, you know, like you, they have, uh, you know, one set of facts or what they believe are facts. And then here's the real set of facts, but th they'll, they'll choose to believe uh, the one that fits their narrative. And we see that kind of thing happening in society a lot. But um, in this case, it, it was, uh, it's, it was over something really horrific where a lot of people lost their lives. Millions of people lost their lives. Yeah. And um, so there, so there's there's uh, several different ways of looking at it that the people that are involved, some believe it and they they say like, well, six million wasn't enough. They'll, they'll say things like that. Then there's other people that say the numbers weren't uh, what they said they were. And they'll cite uh, there was an American Red Cross statistic that said something like four hundred eighty nine or four hundred almost five hundred thousand died according to that figure and that's one of the figures that i used to always cite when i was involved in that uh, so they'll pick pick some of things like that and then they will just choose not to believe the reality of the situation hmm. they just don't so um again it's an it's another uh a disconnect in, in that ideology because so, some people the ones that say like oh we should have six million more or say things like that um you know that's that's a really extreme way of looking at things i mean it's all extreme but um for the other people they yeah. don't want to believe that that someone could do something like that to, to a group of people so yeah. 
they'll say, oh, well, you know, that didn't happen that way. That's just allied propaganda. And the, the victors write the history. Those are, those are the kind of things that I would repeat back in those days. And, and that's, that's what you hear from a lot of extremists currently. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I would even think 500,000. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> that's a lot. Right. And, and that's, yeah. that's what, when, when we're working with people that struggle with the, with those things, you know, and they're like, well, I have this set of facts and this and that happened and that happened. I does it really matter? You know, yeah. and, and I don't want to diminish all the people that did perish and all the families that lost loved ones, but to, to reach some of those people, then you go, does it really matter if it was 500,000, if it was 2 million, yeah. if it was 20 million, you know, yeah. that's a lot of people, no matter how you slice it, that's yeah. horrible. That's yeah. horrific. And, um, you know, in, in wars, a lot of people, so many people lost their lives. It's, it's yeah. reprehensible. That whole thing was just so disturbing, you know, um, you know, and you watch those videos and it's just like gut wrenching, you know, um, the, the way those people look, the survivors even that, you know, came out of it. I mean, just emaciated. And, you know, and today uh, I've had the opportunity to meet with, you know, children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors with Holocaust survivors. And, and, you know, since getting out and uh, working with the Jewish community and, and um, there was one, one lady that put it to me this way. And I, I wish somebody would have said this to me when I was in the movement, because, you know, you'd always say, well, the Jews are just saying that, you know, is, is one of the arguments they'd say. And, and uh, this lady that I know, a friend of mine now, she said, she goes, okay, um, we were breaking down the ideology. And she goes, think of it this way. She, and she talked about how um, her, hearing from her grandparents and it was passed down to her parents and that they heard about it, her and her brothers and sisters heard about it growing up. And it was like, oh, we don't want to go to grandma's house because she's, it's all, we're going to hear about the Holocaust. And, and it's called generational trauma. It's passed on from generation to generation. This is something I learned after I got out. But she said, she said to me, and this was really profound. She said, you know, I understand people in the movement believe that everybody, you know, the Jewish people are evil and all this kind of thing. Um, but she says, would, would, why would they pass down this lie for all these years, you know, to their children, to their grandchildren? Why would they traumatize their own children? Why would they do that with this, with this big lie? If, if that's, if that's what people believe, why would they do that? Why yeah. would they traumatize their own children? I never thought of it that way. No one ever put it to me that way. And, and when she said that, it was just like, whoa, that is something that I'm going to remember. And I'm going to say to every single person that comes to me, that's questioning the Holocaust and questioning what happened, because that makes no sense whatsoever yeah. that this, you know, you could say, well, maybe one family, that person's got mental issues or a couple here or there, but family after family, after yeah. family, after family, generation after generation, no way. Absolutely no way. It makes no sense whatsoever no. that they would do that. So that's a, that was a really powerful way of, of, uh, of looking at it. And it was like the light bulb just snapped. It was like, wow, yeah. I was already by that time I was already, you know, long out, but, um, hearing that I thought, oh man, I've got to, I've got to remember this because this is going to help get other people out. Another thing I did a bit of research on was, you know, the propaganda obviously regarding the Jewish, you know, and the Jews, 
um, and the it was called the what the protocols of the elders of Zion. Can you explain that? Well, the protocols was something that had uh, I forget I'm terrible with anything with numbers, but I think it was like 1898 or or the early 1900s. It was somewhere around that period of time, and that was something that had uh, come out of a meeting allegedly had come out of a meeting in, in Russia, I believe. And um, it was this plan uh, allegedly for the Jewish people to take over the world's media, banking, government, so on and so forth. And um, it, it's widely considered a hoax, but uh, people in the movement, it's for them, it's a, it's an old anti-Semitic trope. It's something that it, uh, uh, they'll blame the Jewish people for. And um it fits their narrative. So it's, it's one more thing that's, that's used to demonize the Jewish people. I wanted to add a couple things on the protocols of the elders of Zion. It has been determined and sort of proven that it was a fabricated anti-Semitic text describing a Jewish plan for global domination. And it was first published in Russia in 1903, and then it was translated into a lot of different languages and disseminated internationally in the early part of the 20th century. And it played a huge part in popularizing a belief in international Jewish conspiracy. And I wanted to just kind of show you an example of this. There was a book that was titled Dialogue in Hell Between, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, Machiavelli and Montesquieu. And here's a quote from that book. How are loans made? by the issue of bonds entailing on the government the obligation to pay interest proportionate to the capital it has been paid. Thus, if a loan is at 5%, the state, after 20 years, has paid out a sum equal to the borrowed capital. When 40 years have expired, it has paid double. After 60 years, triple. Yet it remains debtor for the entire capital sum. So from that same context, in the protocols, a loan is an issue of government paper which entails an obligation to pay interest amounting to a percentage of the total sum of the borrowed money. If a loan is at 5%, then in 20 years, the government would have unnecessarily paid out a sum equal to that of a loan in order to cover the percentage. In 40 years, it will have paid twice, and in 60, thrice that amount, but the loan will still remain as an unpaid debt. And that's on page 77. But it had been calculated that there were 160 passages that were plagiarized from that Dialogue in Hell book. A lot of this uh, comes from fear. And anybody that's in the movement, if somebody would have told me when I was in the movement, this is about fear, you're afraid, or, or that sort of thing, I would have said, you're a liar, that doesn't make any sense. But it really is, it's fear. So people that are involved in these extremist groups, they don't necessarily look at themselves as like the oppressor or someone that's, that's out to hurt others. They see themselves as doing something honorable, something noble, something helpful, something to protect the white race or, you know, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So in their minds, they're the heroes and these other people are the villains. And, and that's... Uh, that's something I think a lot of people don't understand because you have people that get out and they say, well, it was all about hate, 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 hate. And they just, you know, and, and they don't know either. They don't know how to explain it 
or, um, you know, that's just the easy way of explaining it. Hate is fostered and developed in these uh, circles and these movements, but it's not typically the driving factor that gets someone involved. They think they're doing something good. Yeah. Cause I, I, I know in another video you had said, you know, we don't hate, we're not a hate, you know, group. If you as a person, if you are hating somebody or something that eats you up inside, that will age you, that's, it's not good for the, um, uh, the soul, if one believes in that sort of thing, it's not good for your health. And then, of course, you see that video of your life, you know, <laughs> I'm just thinking like, my God, you're going to have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> I was still in the movement at that point. Yeah. Is I'm one of those I'm one of those individuals that really works to inspire people, you know, to empower people. And I talk about hate a little bit. Um, you know, I, I preach love. I mean, I, you know, and, and the reason one of the biggest things that I do is is, you know, when you're dealing with substance abuse or you're dealing with people like that, you know, you're dealing with people that typically hate themselves. They got low self-esteem, you know, they, and so, and, you know, and some of them have racist, you know, things within them. I work a lot with people on self-esteem, working to empower them, working to, you know, so they can learn to love themselves and care about themselves. And, you know, how fear, you kind of brought up fear, fear is the greatest destroyer of happiness. And I know, you know, everybody that, especially with substance abuse, they just want to feel good in life. That's why, you know, they use drugs for so many years. I just want to feel good. And maybe we can find that sober. I have another show that's called High Wall Clean. And it's based on that premise of highness is not a property of drugs. It's a property of people. You know, we, get, we don't get high on drugs. You get high on your own chemicals. And so we can still get high, keep getting high, but let's do it clean, right? <laughs> and, um, but. Yeah, I, I talk about that, um, you know, and so many of the people with substance abuse are such good people, you know, and that's the other stigma that I, you know, work very hard to, to destroy that stigma. I mean, these are good people. They, they you know, those, these are people that aren't out to hurt other people. They hurt themselves. <laughs> but yeah, that's, you know, that's for me. I, I want to say something real quick too. I, I'd seen on your website, your current website, um, you know, things of looking for people to help. And I thought about it and I was thinking on it was, uh, and I wanted to kind of just ask you on that, that um, there's things that I can do um, to give of any assistance. I would, I would love to, you know, based on my ability with time and stuff. I mean, this kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, everything that I do um, and everything that I've done for so many years, hate with, you know, substance abuse, all, you know, the whole realm of mental illness. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to throw that your way too. Thank you so much. Uh, we should definitely uh, talk about that because I, and there is with, with hate, uh, there is uh, some studies going on right now where they're looking at it from that standpoint where like substance abuse and, and, uh, and from the, like a mental illness almost, uh, capacity. Uh, they're, they're looking, they're making studies on, on these type of things and, and to dismantle that type of thinking. I think honestly, it does go hand in hand. There's people that get high on anger. They get high on hate. I guarantee you guys were getting high, not necessarily on drugs, but you know, I mean that there's that adrenaline rush. There's that, you know, all the, all of those things and behavioral addictions, and chemical dependency, the symptoms are all the same, except one. There's no tissue dependency with behavioral addictions. But, you know, that rage, that anger, you know, so many things go hand in hand. I mean, 
how well are you, you know, were you able to hold on to a family? You know, do you give up family and friends for what you're doing? Well, and you, and you said it, the adrenaline, Mm -hmm. we knew um, this is back uh, putting myself back at that, at that point in time, I knew that anytime someone would come out to a rally that they'd be in, you know, that that would, that would uh, solidify them typically because of that adrenaline rush, just, just as you said, that adrenaline rush and that feeling. um, And I've talked about this as well. Um, There was a rally that we had done uh, when I was involved and no one showed up. Uh, No one showed up to counter protest. The the police, what we found out later, the police kind of blocked off the area. And I think that's, that's why, but there was almost no one there. So we're having a rally. We're giving speeches, going through the motions. And at the time when I was still running the organization, I thought, oh, this is a big, huge failure. This is going to be really, really bad. Uh, None of these people are going to come back and go to the next rally because there's no fighting there's nobody screaming and throwing things at us you know there's no nothing it was just like talking to dead air almost and um and it was demoralizing for the people that were there and they were really uh bummed out so uh you know looking at that now you know i mentioned that you know because a lot of people will say well what how should we respond to hate groups what should we what should we do and i you don't want to be you don't want to tell people don't protest you know don't counter protest because um you know it's important to you know speak out against these things but from that side you know from the other side from somebody that was there i can tell you as as a leader of the organization i was stressed out and worried from that rally that nobody showed up at because mm. everyone was demoralized. And anytime there, especially if like the police lines broke and there was violence and people were fighting, there was people from all over the country that would say, I'll be at the next one. I'm so sorry. I missed it yeah. because they wanted to be part of that. So yeah. there's something to that. And there's a very psychological uh, aspect of it. And a lot of, and nobody talks about that. I can totally see that. It makes complete sense to me because yeah, that's the excitement behind it. I look, I, and I, I kind of joke about this a little bit, but my wife is, uh, works for Planned Parenthood and, you know, one of the most hated organizations out there. And of course now you know, I've got all this interesting anti, <laughs> you know, thing with the, but she does billing. She's a director of, you know, billing and stuff. And uh, the, every once in a while they'll have these big events. Right. And, um, and I, I kind of joke about it, but I go and I'm going, I hope to God there's protesters, you know, <laughs> you know, just because I can feel that, that type of thing. Um, okay. So now's the big question. How the fuck do you walk away from it? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, it, it, for me, for everybody, it's different. And I'm, I'm going to uh, share a quick story about uh, first when I was involved, when I was still involved, there was a guy that was a, a pretty good recruiter for the organization. Um, it, was, it was a great recruiter, actually. And for him, he called me up one day and he says, you know, sir, I'm done. I'm, I'm out. And I said, wait a minute. You just sent us three recruits last week. What, what's going on? You're a great recruiter. What, what is, why are you leaving? And for him, it was one thing. His car broke down on the side of the road. And I want to preface this. This guy is covered head to toe in tattoos, racial tattoos, swastikas, you name it, Mm. covered. Um, Not somebody that the average person would see on the side of the road and stop and go help. Um, And that's just 
just just because of the way he looked. And um, he was stranded on the road, couldn't get a hold of nobody, and a complete stranger who happened to be a black person stopped and helped him. Mm. Got his car on the road. And I have a similar story uh, in my own in my own story like that. But it was that one instant for him. He said, I'm done. He goes, that's it. He saw the humanity in 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 people outside of his bubble. And that broke broke it for, for me. It took a little longer. Um, we in the work that we do, we hope people disengage first from the movement, and then you work on de-radicalization. It's harder to do it the opposite way. Um, in my case, I was de-radicalizing while I was still in. If anybody would have told me that, I would have, wouldn't have believed it. I couldn't have saw it. But uh, the last few years I was in, I was talking about hate isn't good. As you mentioned earlier in the program, I, I did say that actually when I was still in. And um, I was uh, demanding that people call it a white civil rights organization and, and saying things like that. I was de-radicalizing while I was still in. For me, it, was, it took a lot longer. When I started seeing uh, the humanity in others and, and how that came about was actually by accident or by, uh, at least on my part, it was by accident. I was contacted uh, to be a part of a, a film called Accidental Courtesy. And um, basically, when I was in the movement, I was in documentaries and news stories and things like that all the time. So it was nothing out of the ordinary. But in this case, the film Accidental Courtesy featured uh, somebody by the name of Daryl Davis, who is part of our team at Beyond Barriers today and works with us in de-radicalization and disengagement. And he's one of the best in the country, maybe one of the best in the world. Um, Daryl Davis is a black man. Um, he's famous, a famous musician. He used to play with Chuck Berry, Little Richard, all these uh, famous musicians. He lights the piano keys on fire. Anybody that gets a chance to see him play live should go check him out. He's a phenomenal musician. Um, I didn't know who he was or, or any, I mean, I knew of him, but I didn't know who I was meeting for this film. And typically I did my research to see who I was meeting with and all that. And for whatever reason on this particular film, I didn't do that. I just agreed to it. And uh, so I met him and we started talking and Daryl told me a story about how racism and hate affected him as a child. And he was in the boy Scouts, went to a boy Scout parade and was being pelted with rocks at about 11 years old, mm. uh, white adults, because he was the only black child that was in this um, parade, the Boy Scout parade. And um, I'm sitting across from him hearing this story. And I, I'm not, uh, you know, going to show him that this is bothering me or that it's that it's getting to me, but it certainly did. Um, because here I'm thinking I'm doing something noble. I'm doing something honorable. I'm fighting for my people. I'm fighting for my country. And um, I'm thinking about Daryl's story and what he told me. And what if that was one of my kids? How would I have yeah. reacted? And um, it didn't sit right. So I, you know, he got through to me. He, pl he planted a seed is what he did there. And um, it was about six months after that. It wasn't too long. Um, another documentary and in between there's other ones, but these two really stand out because of the approach and the method and the way they, they, uh, they reached me. And another, uh, person who's, uh, a friend of mine to this day, Dia Khan, she's a Muslim filmmaker, um, originally from Pakistan and she had come over from England 
there. And um, she told me a similar experience and I had gotten to know her quite well over the course of filming for her film, white, right meeting the enemy. Um, so the filming was over a period of weeks and then there was a break in between and then more filming. So um, I got to know her quite well and we're sitting across from each other, having a conversation just like Daryl and I had. And she tells me about how racism and hate made her feel as a child and how it made her feel less than how it made her feel not worthy or not as good as and ugly and, and hated. And I could see, I could see the pain in her face, but more importantly, I could feel it like a vibe or an energy that was in the air. I could feel it. And it felt like getting kicked in the chest by a horse. It, it was, it was, it made me sick inside. Um, and the cameraman in, in white, right. Um, in the film, you can, you can see a little bit of this because he zoomed in on my eyes cause he caught it. Um, you know, that it was bothering me. And in parts of the film, I'm telling, I'm saying to her, you know, I, I don't like you using that word about a racist uh, statement against uh, Muslims and, and different, different things like that were happening. So she was able to pick up on that and, um, and saw that, but how, what, what they did, what both of them did was help me reconnect with my humanity and they, they do it with people all the time. There was other people that left the movement um, in, in the film, uh, in Dia's film. And also Daryl's, uh, Daryl personally has walked out, helped walk out over 200 people from the clan, which is uh, for a black man, it's, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it, it's so rare. And so, but this is how they do it. And this is the, the method that we use at Beyond Barriers, which is our nonprofit uh, uh, to help other people get out of these type of organizations. We use that same, we call it relational dialogue. That's our program, one of our programs. And the program is, is helping people to reconnect with their humanity. Because once you go into these movements, you become a dehumanizer. You're dehumanizing other people. You're judging them. You're, you're, yeah. you're dehumanizing them. And as a dehumanizer, you lose your humanity in the process. You can't, talk, you can't talk about humanity when you're dehumanizing other people. So what they did was helped that, that humanity isn't lost forever. Typically, if you don't have any kind of empathy for others and you're just completely disconnected, there might be some other psychological issues like a sociopath or a psychopath, but right. everyone else in this society and the world has that empathy. And when you're in these movements, you've blocked that out. You put yourself behind a barrier and, and inside this bubble or this echo chamber. And when you do that, your humanity is disconnected and, and you're not able to see it. So what Daryl and Dia did was they helped reopen that window or that door and reconnect that humanity. And when you start feeling that empathy for others, which you've blocked out in the movement, it's hard to turn that back off. That was turned off for years and years and years. And, and once, once that's turned back on, I mean, you have to, you can either rejoin humanity or you can, uh, um, you know, stay in your bubble in your echo chamber and, and rejoining humanity is where it's at. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. Thank you. It really is. You know, I mean, uh, I, you know, one thing I teach a lot of people too, you know, everybody's like words hurt, words hurt. Right. And one thing I always tell people is that because, you know, you cannot, <clears throat> People can say anything they want, you know, people and, and people do. Um, and so it's about learning to protect ourselves. And, and one of the things that I teach people is that it, words don't hurt. I can't punch you with a word. I can't throw a word at you, anything like that, right? What hurts is the meanings that you put behind the things that people say that actually hurt, 
And, um, you know, it's like with anything, I mean, I, you know, I got, you know, friends in my life that I can go and we can joke about racist things, you know, um, but they don't have any meaning behind it. You know, like my wife, my wife's, my wife's Hispanic, right. Her family's from Chile and we joke all the time. She always calls me her husband cracker and stuff, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but none of that has any meaning to it, you know? Um, and I, and that's the one thing that I think people really should look at. If somebody says something to me that hurts me or bothers me, then there's something within it that I believe myself. Otherwise it wouldn't bother me. And so that's where, you know, and I honestly, I, I tell, tell them all the time is that if people are trying to be hurtful and they say something to you that hurts you, thank them because now they just taught you something. There's, they taught you that now I get an opportunity to look at why that hurt me and maybe I can change that. And, uh, and I think that, you know, that, I think that's so important for people to realize, you know, cause again, I mean, you've got tons of people out there that, that are haters, you know, tons of people and you can't do anything about it. There's nothing we can do. Um, all we can do is empower ourselves, change ourselves, love ourselves, care about ourselves and not care what other people think, you know, because how I think of myself is what matters. That's all that really should matter. You know? That's a really, that's a really interesting way of looking at things. And, and, and you're right, you know, as far as, um, you know, the way people, the way people view things and, and, um, and, and the words as, as well, that's, that's, I'm still going to process that. I'm going to think yeah. about that one. Yeah. That's good. When you're angry, when you're rageful or something and you feel it yourself, best thing you can do is do nothing. Best thing you can do is say nothing. And sometimes the best thing you can do, just walk away, but then come back and deal with it. And that's what I love about this show because I'm doing what we're doing with this is, is um, trying to just gain an understanding of what this looks like. I mean, through our meeting here, I can, I can now say, okay, I understand the mindset of that. I don't agree with it at all, but understanding it's, you know, I say this with politics with people too, you know, people get crazy with politics, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, but one of the best things in the world that you can do is if you can understand the ambivalent nature of things, right? So I can understand the Democrats view. I understand the Republicans view. I, I don't agree with them, but I understand it. That allows me to sit and talk about it with people. And, uh, and that's why we've really, really worked hard at doing this show, you know. But, man, I, I got to say, I, I'm impressed. And, and the reason being is that I, you know, psychology was my major. I really understand the human mind in the terms of, you know, the, the way people typically think. It's very rare. Um, to see somebody, you said 27 years, 27, 27 years to be out saying all this stuff over and over. I mean, I guarantee it's just embedded in your mind. And then to all of a sudden, wait a minute, what am I doing? That's, I mean, and honestly, I think your story is fucking powerful. <laughs> I really do. I, I, like I said, I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. 
it wasn't easy, you know, it, and it, and it, you know, even, even having those experiences with Daryl and Dia, I didn't leave right then. I, I kept, I, I, the best way I can explain it, like you've heard the phrase, probably uh, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. Sure. That's what I was trying to do. Like, I was like, okay, this isn't, this isn't good. I, I shouldn't be a part of this. How do I fix it? So then I was like, all right, you know, this isn't a racist group uh, and, you know, obviously yeah. it is, but in my head at the time I was saying, you know what, we're going to fix this. We're going to, we're going to, um, you know, call it a white civil rights group. And so I'm trying to put lipstick on the Nazi party and trying to make it into something that it could never be. But in my mind at the time, looking back now, I go, oh my gosh, like what in the world were, were you thinking? But that's why, you know, like I mentioned the, the guy with, the, with the tattoos, one instant and he was out for me it took it took longer it took several years uh before i actually uh broke broke free of the organization because i'm going through as the leader i felt responsible in a lot of ways you know like um maybe i can fix this maybe i can repair the organization maybe i can you know i'm going through all these different things and then there was other other aspects on a more personal level like my business was tied into this stuff. Like this is what I did for a living was run the uh, record label and the, the business part. So, um, you know, that I was thinking, well, what am I going to do about that? I can't, you know, I'm not going to keep selling this crap if I'm out, uh, out of the organization as well. So, um, you know, and you're, you're in your forties and you're going, whoa, now I need to start over from scratch with, with nothing and a whole reputation of, you know, 27 years as I, at, before I started speaking out, because I didn't start speaking out immediately when I left. Um, but before that, it, during that time, which I called the, my decompression period, because I felt like my brain was just like, just, it was decompressing, you know, and you were trying to figure out why did you do this? Why, why did I, uh, behave this way? Why did I stay so long? And, and you're beating yourself up over it. And, and um, most of the phone calls and people trying to reach me, you know, I wasn't answering, but a couple of friends, you know, I, I took the calls. And uh, the my one friend, he said to me, he says, you know, I'm really worried about you. Like, what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do? He's what do you put on your resume? Uh, commander of the Nazi party for 25 years? You know, I was in 27, but I led it for 25, um, you know, white power record label executive for however many years that was, um, you know, like I have business skills, I have leadership skills, but the wrong, obviously the very wrong course. So those were some of the things that I was struggling with as I was, I was leaving too, you know, but it, to me, still, like I said, I was an ideologue. I fully believed in what I was doing for a long time. And as an ideologue, when I didn't believe in it anymore, now I'm a hypocrite. If I stay, if I stay any longer, I'm a hypocrite and I'm, I'm a liar. So, and I was raised not, you know, I can't stand liars um, and I don't like hypocrites. So it, it would have been easier. And I explained it this way. It would have been easier to stay because that's what I had done for so long. And, and uh, I was running a profitable business and, and all that as well, or I could start over and uh, see where, see where things, where life takes me. But I felt like as, as an ideologue, I don't believe in this anymore. 
um, I can't reconcile with staying. So I needed, to, and I knew I was going to speak out, but I still, I had to process things first before I spoke out. So mm-hmm. now I'm, I'm on that, uh, mission to, tr- to try to, you know, really actually do good in the world and, and, uh, and fix things and repair some of the damage done by my past as well. Yeah. When I first left, I, I felt like the racism was gone, but the anti-Semitism was something I was still working on. And I, yeah. the Simon Wiesenthal Center was, was uh, and uh, other people in the Jewish community were very helpful in helping me get past that. Um, yeah, because that's the, I mean, obviously Nazis, I mean, that was, you know, the Jewish was obviously the prominent issue. So yeah. that makes sense, you know. Um, yeah, I, I think I wanted to say that, like you're the perfect person to do what you do. You know, you've got that life experience. I mean, I think about it with me. I had many years, I was, you know, IV meth user and, you know, (laughs) lived lived that insanity and that lifestyle. Um, And I kind of realized that one day that, you know what, I'm probably one of the, the most perfect people to go out and help people and to, you know, fight to help, people save lives. I mean, uh, you know, substance abuse now, I mean, people are dying in record numbers, um, the fentanyl and all that craziness, you know? Um, yeah, we got kind of a lot of epidemics going on <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And hate is definitely one of those, you know? Um, well, th- thank you for sharing that too, because that now that makes total sense. Why, why you're, doing the, sh- the walk the mile in your shoes uh, or in my shoes uh, uh, program, because you, you've been there, you came out of that and now you're helping others. So you want, you understand this, this mission exactly. Mm-hmm. I do hundred uh, percent in what you do. And that's why I had said that, you know, I would, I would be honored uh, if you had anything, you know, that you needed help with. Um, if you ever come back out to Los Angeles area, um, hit me up, you know, um, <clears throat> Whatever, whatever, you know, whatever it is that I can do to help, I would be honored to, to assist, you know? Thank you so much. Um, is there anything that I haven't, we haven't brought up that you think would be important to say? If there's anybody that's out there, that's uh, listening, that's involved in any kind of extremism, that's, that's on the fence. It doesn't matter if you're far right, far left, religious extremism, you're in a gang. Um, even, even um, one of the other things that we work on with, excuse me, with our relational dialogue program is even in the country right now with the Democrats and Republicans, people are so divided. Mm -hmm. You have family members that'll say, well, so-and-so voted for Trump. I won't talk to them. Mm So-and-so voted for Biden. I won't talk to them. You have this, most of us have this in our families or at least within our circle of friends. Um, And we know people like this and um, it's not good for the country. It's not patriotic. It's not, it's not positive. It's harmful for humanity. We're, we're, dehumanizing one another. Um, and we need to start looking at one another as, as human beings and reconnect with our humanity. And, and uh, so if anybody out there struggling with it and they uh, need some help or they, or they need a, a tool set to, to, uh, to work on these things or to break down those biases and things like that, reach out to us. We're, we're happy to help. It's beyondbarriersusa.org. Awesome. Yeah. You know, looking for similarities instead of differences. I mean, that's and one similarity. We're all Americans. Right. Yeah. All Americans. And that's another thing that I, I really focus on. I, you know, with people is to let's be optimistic, right. 
I don't have problems. I got opportunities, right? Um, start looking for the similarities instead of, you know, all, all, when I look at differences, all I'm doing is pushing people away. Yeah, that's it. And, uh, I mean, we find that just in the simplest thing with substance abuse or like, oh, well, I'm an alcoholic. You're a heroin addict. We're so different. No, you're not. <laughs> There's nothing different between you. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, man. Hey, I want to just say again, I really appreciate you doing this. I appreciate what you do. Um, and I think it's very honorable that, um, you know, you've, and it takes a lot of courage. It's a lot of courage to go from, you know, what you were doing to now standing up and, and fighting against what you were doing. That's powerful. Well, likewise, you, you went from, from being an addict to helping addicts leave. And that, and that's, so it's, it's, this, it's, it's a little different, but it's the same. It's the same in, in other ways. The, the mission, the mission is the same. It's helping people improve their lives. It is, you know, although, again, yeah, like I was saying, I do think that, that there's a lot more similarities in your thinking because of the adrenaline, the, you know, everything that the drug addicts looking for too. Yeah, exactly. And there's been, there's been a couple of studies on that, but I think they need to be looked into a little bit more. Yeah. Well, Hey, again, I thank you so much, man. And let's stay in touch. Yeah. hundred um, percent. And uh, again, let me know anything I can do. Hey, so uh, I want to thank everybody again for tuning into an episode of Walk a Mile in My Shoes. Please check out my other podcast, High Wall Clean. And uh, Lona Curry, I know you're not on here. Um, wish you were. <laughs> but uh, again, thank everybody for, wa- for walking a mile today with us. And, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.